thing that happens when you do a podcast about dead companies is that, of course, the algorithm notices. And since surveillance capitalism's main prerogative is to sell stuff, the algorithm translates me doing research into Enron and Blockbuster and other dead companies into a desire for merch. Dead company merch. This is something that pretty much the entire Ripcorp team has experienced since starting the show. And listeners, I'm not gonna lie. I've been tempted. The algorithm got me. When I talked about this episode with two of our producers, Mike Rignetta and Jason Oberholzer, we all confessed to a certain morbid attraction to corporate detritus. While none of us are really collectors, we all have at least some weird branded stuff that we've held on to from old jobs or weird experiences. I have a t-shirt that is from Blockbuster, uh, where I worked in high school, and it is a t-shirt that I was given at work uh, that I was required to wear for the release of a movie called Joyride. My most absurd thing that I have is a stick of chapstick that is branded for long Why chapstick? Do you know? I don't know why chapstick, but uh, at one of the get-togethers for long reads that we went to, someone came armed with a box full of long reads brand chapsticks. My weirdest piece of merch is probably the Amazon Basics branded mini flashlight that I was gifted on one of those creepy Amazon warehouse tours back in 2014. We don't keep this stuff out of sentimentality. Mike didn't love the 2001 film Joyride starring the late Paul Walker, and Longreads' branded chapstick wasn't especially high quality. That Amazon flashlight, it stopped working within a month. If corporate merch has an allure, it usually comes after the fact of the company or in spite of the company. This episode of Ripcorp is a little look into the afterlives of corporate merch as a collector's item, as nostalgia play, as irony-laden artifact representing the hubris of capitalism, and the ways people live with these artifacts and the legacies attached to them. go too deep, we should probably develop a taxonomy for merch. There's obvious differences between a t-shirt for a favorite band and a work-mandated blockbuster t-shirt, right? One helps the band pay for gas on tour and is a marker of taste and or fandom, whereas the other mostly loses money for a brand and typically isn't exactly chosen by the wearer. In general, what we're talking about is branded merchandise that's incidental to a company's bottom line. Stuff given to employees or handed out to randos at conferences and stuff. The former, employee-specific merch, can vary from the cheap t-shirt to higher-end items known as business gifts, stuff commemorating years of service or whatever. But a lot of what's given to workers isn't all that different from what's offered to the general public in that its main purpose is pushing and displaying allegiance. Which, if you think about it too much, is weird. You know, humans have put symbols on objects as a way to reflect fealty for centuries, sure. You know, feudal knights bore the seal of some house or whatever. But feudal lords didn't give their peasants, like, free seal-bearing pens or, I guess, quills. 
Would-be knights weren't recruited at, like, VassalCon by lords handing out feudal fidget spinners. The point is, corporate merch doesn't feel like an inevitable or tale-as-old-as-time form of social expression. Where did it begin? How did it begin? few industry-adjacent blogs claiming that America's first promotional product was created by literally George Washington in the form of campaign buttons for his election. Frankly, I'm not sure how much I trust the history provided by merch makers themselves. For what it's worth, there were a lot of commemorative buttons, like jacket buttons, stamped to commemorate Washington's inauguration, but I, I've yet to find evidence that America's first president was also its first, um, brand. Though, to be fair, what is more American than branding? The main industry association for merch makers, Promotional Products Association International, dates the formalization of the industry to PPAI's founding in 1903, originally as the National Association of Advertising Novelty Manufacturers, which isn't that much better of a name. But before it got professionalized, merch as a thing had been going strong since the late 1800s, as Wendy Wollison explains. So I'm Wendy Wollison. I am professor of history at Rutgers University Camden. I'm also the chair of our department. And my most recent book is Crap, um, a history of cheap goods in America. In Wendy's book, the origins of corporate merch as we know it are traced to the late 19th century, a time of major developments in industrial capitalism and some important technological breakthroughs in printing technology. Specifically, it became a lot easier to print and engrave onto materials like wood, metal, and fabrics at factory scale. Suddenly, a lot of cheap, mass-produced items could now double as advertising services. So we see like in the 1880s and 1890s advertisements for companies that can buy things like rulers and fly swatters, pigskin purses, tin, what were called tip trays that were used in restaurants, that you could basically have your business name imprinted onto or into. Branded fly swatters and rulers were cheap enough that companies could afford to lose money on giving them away. And thinking about corporate swag as a kind of gift makes this stuff make a lot more sense. Yes, branded merch is a, it's a new and unique historical event, but gifts are a very old and very important social construct, arguably a kind of social glue. One of the earliest evangelists of merch at that time called specialty advertising was Henry Bunting, who in 1910 published a book on the topic that reveals a keen grasp of the psychology underlying merch. Here's Wendy reading a quote from the book. I mean, he, he writes, there is nothing you can give so cheap that it will be prized as much as this. He's talking about these cheap goods. And he's kind of talking about this, this magic or this alchemy and saying that regardless of how crappy these things are, people are going to kind of treasure them. We like gifts. We like being given things, even if they're cheap and crappy. And even if we know that they're given kind of cynically, we're still like really drawn to them. And so he, he talks about this. It's kind of like how forcing yourself to smile might actually improve your mood. Going through the motions of gift giving makes dumb stuff you don't need seem appealing. 
Or maybe, as Wendy put it, there's something in our lizard brains that really likes getting cheap stuff. Hence, Jason holding on to his long reads chapstick and me treasuring a broken Amazon flashlight. So what part of the lizard brain specifically seeks out that cheap stuff secondhand solely because of its corporate provenance? I can't decide whether the impulse towards collecting dead company merch is actually a lizard brain move or something of a higher order. Maybe it's like a crow brain, right? Like the part of the mind that eats roadkill and delights in shiny objects. Because dead company merch is a shiny object. Once a business goes under, and especially once the merch object is removed from its original corporate context, that t-shirt or mug is no longer just a cynically accepted mass-produced gift, but a synecdoche for that company's rise and fall. Corporations collapse, but their cheap stuff persists. The primary custodians of dead company merch are, perhaps unsurprisingly, eBay sellers. Getting eBay sellers to talk to us on tape for this episode unfortunately proved pretty difficult. Maybe because they didn't want their tricks of the trade revealed, maybe because people who choose to sell stuff on eBay as their primary source of income aren't seeking out the public eye. We don't totally know. What little we could gleam from DM conversations and such was this. There isn't really such a thing as a typical eBay seller of dead company merch, but they are apparently attentive to how current events might shape the value of said merch. Two vendors we were in touch with both mentioned keeping an eye on the Theranos scandal when it first unfolded in 2015 and sought to cash in on the company's renewed notoriety following founder Elizabeth Holmes's conspiracy and wire fraud trial in 2021 and subsequent conviction in 2022. But while one of our eagle-eyed Theranos sellers was a part-time generalist selling lots of weird secondhand wares on eBay, the other was more of a corporate history collector who didn't usually sell his finds, often acquired at Silicon Valley estate sales. Some sellers of dead company merch get into it because they're actually part of the niche market of dead company merch collectors. Scott Davidson runs Wall Street Treasures, which sells gifts for financial professionals. The idea for the company came out of his experiences in financial advising and accounting and seeing financial planners get well-intentioned but somewhat lacking gifts. We noticed that everybody was getting those dreadful fruit baskets and chocolates, and it's like, really? You know, we can do better than that. And the reality was, if you wanted to get something special and unique for your financial planner, because they did a great job for you, there just wasn't anywhere to go. And even if you did know what you wanted, it was hard to find. In addition to a variety of bull and bear-themed figurines, Wall Street Treasure sells vintage artifacts and merch of companies both alive and dead. Stock certificates, annual reports, weirder stuff like a Berkshire Hathaway-themed edition of Monopoly and a piggy bank with the logo of Arthur Anderson, Enron's accounting firm, which was convicted of obstruction of justice in the early 2000s. For Davidson, it's clear that the history of this stuff is the main appeal. They, they're kind of like a snapshot in history. They tell a story, and they can. it's kind of like a good song. It can bring you back to a certain point in time, and you can like remember what you were doing, what you felt like, what was going on. And that's kind of you know the crux of our website. We just want to capture that history, and we don't want it to go away. We don't want to lose it. So that's why Davidson collects and sells this stuff. But what about his buyers? 
This brings us to the last question of this episode. We know why companies make merch, and we know a little more about who sells it after the fact. But who exactly is buying, and why? One of the more idealistic variations of the dead merch buyer is one that Davidson describes. Fellow history buffs who understand that remembering corporate transgressions isn't merely an academic exercise, but a potential check on future corruption. Like, I know I've had conversations with people about Enron memorabilia. They'll, they'll keep things around just to keep their ethics in check, right? And I say that, too, because with an accounting background, sometimes it's good to have that reminder. We're just, we're staying on the, the right track here. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes the merch of the dead becomes a way of actively trying to undo some of the damage companies have done, like when federal marshals auctioned off fire Festival merch to refund victims of the scam. But were most buyers of auctioned fire Festival merch altruistically paying $495 for a baseball cap because they cared about the victims? Probably not. If Davidson's enthusiasm for keeping history alive reflects more idealistic motives for collecting dead company merch, the alternative is dead company merch as wearable shitpost. Wearing that now, it's kind of like a reminder, like, oh yeah, Arthur Anderson, oh yeah, Lehman Brothers, Enron, they're awful. <laughs> they did, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, a reminder that, Capitalism and all of that has like this kind of smoke and mirror type of evil that finance companies do. Ah, uh, God, uh, it's lovely. That's Will Robeson, painter, businessman, and our producer Jason's neighbor, explaining why he's a fan of T-shirts from failed business ventures. His own collection includes Enron, Arthur Anderson, and Theranos. Robeson associates a panoply of feelings with this merch. Well, all kinds of emotions from anger to, you know, you giggle because it's too big to fail, failed, and that's always lovely, right? You know, they, they can't carry on kind of policing America and everybody anymore. Kind of like America in a nutshell. This kind of fascination with corporate failure isn't quite the same enthusiasm that drove all the books and podcasts and documentaries about Theranos and WeWork and the Fire Festival, but it's certainly adjacent to it. A lot of people like stories of explosive corporate failure and scammers getting comeuppance because it so rarely actually happens. It's a way of keeping alive the possibility of justice, whatever that means. And maybe an authentic Theranos t-shirt is a kind of visual shorthand for conveying that particular flavor of schadenfreude. A fire festival hat, in this view, isn't saying fire festival as much as it is implying fire festival, am I right? But what does all that winking and nodding really signify? If infamous dead companies are exceptional, it's because they got caught. And more importantly, because they faced consequences. If an Enron commemorative plaque reminds accountants to stay honest because there were significant consequences, what's the vibe on a vintage Goldman Sachs item? Is there a knowing smirk to be made at Blackwater gear? What's the lesson learned from a Purdue Pharma bucket hat promoting OxyContin? Which is, is a thing that actually was made. Uh, there are pictures of it on the internet. 
Pharmaceutical merch is an angle we barely touched in this episode, partly because technically in 2009, the industry voluntarily agreed to stop making it. But holy shit, what a grim corner of eBay. And leaving aside companies that get away with despicable things, it's hard to believe that people have really learned or will ever learn the lessons of companies like Enron or Lehman Brothers when millions of dollars disappear into cryptocurrency scams on the regular. There's just as much nihilism in the merch's shitpost position as there is schadenfreude. There isn't really a right or wrong way to feel about dead company ephemera. For me, it's it's always some combination of all these motives at once. I often find myself thinking about the process underlying the merch. Someone at Enron had to go through catalogs of engravable paperweights and pick a design for a commemorative gift. There were probably meetings about that paperweight, whole lives involved in the construction of a shitty little bauble that ended up on some pious accountant's desk. This stupid object was rescued from the landfill simply by virtue of the fact it features the logo of a company that was once the biggest bankruptcy in American history. Whenever corporations do stuff, it feels a little bit like watching a monstrous creature in an ill-fitting human skin suit pantomime human behavior. Like, kind of like Vincent D'Onofrio in Men in Black. Give me sugar and water. Look, I'm just like you, normal human. I give branded gift. Aren't you appreciative of my kindness? A similar energy permeates corporate social media accounts that attempt to be unhinged, and basically every piece of marketing during Pride Month. But in that second act, when the corporate object exists and the corporate person has died, it's almost easier to conceive of the humanity underlying the brand and the object, to, to disentangle the story of the meetings and the graphic design and the supply chain that made the Enron paperweight. In this way, merch ultimately acts as a kind of contemporary memento mori because all companies die eventually and all merch eventually becomes dead merch. By the way, we um we we have merch for the show now. Yeah, my my careful distinction between merch for a cultural project and merch for a corporate entity at the top of the episode was very intentional. Charts and Leisure funds this show as a side project on top of client work, and frankly, that means none of us can really afford to work on this show as regularly as we'd like. If you could give us money for t-shirts designed by the terrific Beatriz Lozano and Megan Mulholland, we can use that money to subsidize working on this show. And when the show dies, like all good podcasts must, maybe you can flip it on eBay for a billion dollars. Just go to our website, ripcorp.biz, or check out the show notes for this episode if you want to go buy some merch yourself. Thanks so much to Wendy Wollison, Will Robeson, and Mike and Jason for adding their voices to this episode. Thanks also to Brian Jensen, who we interviewed for more insight into eBay sellers, but weren't able to fit into this episode. This episode was written and researched by me with additional research and fact-checking by Matt Giles. It was produced by Megal Gennardin and Mike Rignetta with music and sound design by Andrew Adkin and Michael Simonelli. Artwork for the show is by Beatriz Lozano and Megan Mulholland. Jason Oberholzer is our executive producer. Rip Corp is a production of Charts and Leisure. 
Also do it as Rip Corp is a production of Charts and Leisure because I don't actually know which one we use. Is it Charts and Leisure or Charts and Leisure? I think it's Leisure.